Hello, and welcome to Learning for Life at Gustavus, the podcast about people teaching and learning at Gustavus Adolphus College and the myriad ways that Gustavus liberal arts education provides a lasting foundation for lives of fulfillment and purpose. I'm your host, Greg Castor, faculty member in the Department of History. What is good sex from the perspective of liberation theology? This provocative question is just one of many. My guest today, Dr. Thea Cooper of the Department of Religion at Gustavus, which she currently chairs, has explored in her fascinating and wide-ranging work at the intersection of, in her words, religion, culture, and society. Professor Cooper joined the Gustavus faculty in 2005, having earned her PhD that year from the Center for the Study of Christianity in the Non-Western World in the School of Divinity at University of Edinburgh. She offers courses not only for her department, but also for the college's Latin American, Latinx, and Caribbean studies, gender, women, and sexuality studies, and peace, justice, and conflict studies programs. Those offerings include faith, religion, and culture, sex, race, money, God, God and globalization, religion and politics in Latin America, global feminisms, and liberation struggles. Dr. Cooper's research interests include, to quote her, theology and liberation, theology and development, faith and practice and faith-based agencies, non-Western Christianities, and religion in Latin America, particularly Brazil. From these interests have come four single-authored books, including Queer and Indecent, The Theology of Marcella Althaus-Reed, and A Christian Guide to Liberating Desire, Sex, Partnership, Work, and Reproduction. There are as well an edited volume, book chapters, journal articles, translations, and presentations at conferences and seminars. And no stranger to podcasts, she has spoken about her book, Queer and Indecent, on the podcast, Love, Rinse, and Repeat. As even this brief uh, summary of her work as a teacher-scholar suggests, Dr. Cooper engages with a host of subjects and issues that are not only intrinsically interesting, but also timely and in some cases sites of intense cultural and political conflict. For these reasons, I've been looking forward to speaking with her about both her work and story, and I'm delighted she could join me. So welcome to another podcast, Thea. It's great to have you on. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks. My pleasure. Um, let's start with um, the pandemic. I mean, I mean, Ukraine has kind of eclipsed that that news, uh, but it's still there, lurking, if not, uh, you know, sort of front and center. How has it been for you teaching amid um, amid that? I've asked all my all my all of our colleagues, I should say. What's that been yeah. like? Um, so it's funny. I was listening to your your podcast with uh, Sam Kessler the other day, and oh, yeah. um, in general, I know that most people just hated Zoom or hate Zoom. Um, but I have to say, when the technology is working, and once our students actually were able to, you know, get access to the technology, I really enjoyed teaching via Zoom, which probably sounds bizarre to most people, um, but. One of the things I noticed, and this was early on, was that students who were quieter in the classroom setting were actually more comfortable having a conversation with just that little bit of, you know, space between us or distance yes. that um, Zoom created. Um, and so this kind of combination of of asynchronous things that you can do in Moodle, uh, Zoom, and then, you know, occasionally being able to get back into the classroom. I actually really enjoyed uh, the combination. Now, what I yeah, did not enjoy, of course, was the sheer horror of what was going on and yeah. all of that. But the actual right. teaching part I did enjoy. 
Yeah, I have to say, I, I can't remember what I said in the podcast with your colleague, Sam Kessler, but um, yeah, I mean, in general, for me, it was a positive experience, you know, given given everything. I'd never, probably like you, probably like most of us, I'd never, at least in the humanities, never taught online. I mm-hmm. used to make noises about, you know, if I ever do that, I'm stopping. Uh, <laughs> but it actually went well. Um, I found, I didn't find, I, yeah, I found some students who, you're right about that, some students who were kind of, would have been quieter in class were a bit more, uh, vocal, but in general, the only thing I, I I found different was you know they're on a flat screen. I'm seeing them that way because <laughs> I, I tend to run my courses as kind of discussion. Uh, I don't know what to call. Them. I call them workouts. Um, but mm-hmm. anyway, it went well, uh, and I thought the students, you know, contrary to what we read, or at least I've read a lot of stuff about students, you know, college students, how horrible it's been, and this and that, and they haven't learned. I didn't. I didn't have that. I mean, there were some students who were dealing with a lot of difficult issues related to the pandemic. But man, I mean, they rose to the occasion, I have to say. I mean, they were there, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, the the conversations um, that I have in my classes as well tend to be about – you know, I mean, we talked about the pandemic, we talked about issues of poverty, we talked about, you know, all of this stuff that was going on. So there was space within the classes to reflect on, you know, it wasn't like the topic was completely uh, different to the experiences that they were going through. So yeah, that's a good point. Right. That's a very good point. Yeah, I didn't quite have that. But I did start all the classes with um Wonderful, wonderful uh, video presentation by a historian about parallels between 1918 and mm. and uh, the present pandemic. But so that was kind of there. Anyway, yeah, I hear. And also, yeah, I would, you know, teaching about 1968 as as George Floyd was being, you know, oh killed. Yeah. And so there was, there was that. Um, but in general, yeah, I, I, you know, it'll be interesting to see what we continue, don't continue, that we uh, used, learned amid this god-awful uh, plague. What about um, your background now? I mean, it's interesting to me. You went to you went to Brown, but did you did you grow up in Rhode Island? Is that where you grew up? No, um, I grew up. So it's kind of funny if you if you had seen me when I was a kid, you would never have imagined that I would have gone to Brown. Um, <laughs> I, I was um, so my mom was a single mom. Um, we oh, wow. were super poor. Um, <clears throat> you know, sort of survived by the wonderful kindness of a variety of people in the church that my mom attended, um, well, that I attended as well when I was a kid. Um, so I grew up in New Hampshire, really, really poor. Oh, gosh, um, I love New Hampshire. Loved school, um, bizarrely. Um, just, you know, in that situation, it was sort of, my mom was always really um, clear that if I wanted to get out of you know, the, the, the unpleasant, uh, unheated apartment that we were living in, that education was kind of the way, um, to be able to do this. And so I ended up doing really well in school. I had a ton of opportunities, um, um, that of course, as I got older, I became aware that many of my classmates did not have these opportunities. Um, but they ended up, um, you know, everything went really well. I ended up being valedictorian and then I got mm-hmm. into Brown and which was a whole different experience for yeah, being uh, sure. poor in Manchester, New Hampshire. So, yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, oh, Manchester. I was just going to ask you. Yeah. Yes, okay. Manchester. Now, Kate Winston, who my wife who taught at Gustavus, now retired. We 
we went to school at Boston University. That's where we met yep. for a PhD. So we did, we spent, oh, we just, we still miss New England. I mean, we, you know, in the fall, of course, we, mm. we've we gone to New Hampshire often and really, really enjoy it. But um, I did not know that at all about you. That's interesting. So your mom was dealing, had she, uh, was she working full time too? I mean, we'll try. Yeah. To- so when I was really, really young, so when I was first um, born, uh, my mom was on welfare and um, was, she ended up running a daycare um, through that for other um, kids whose parents were on welfare um, in order for them to be able to work. Um, This is in the 70s. So it wasn't, you know, an either or you could actually both get a little social support and also work. Um, Imagine that. I know. Shocking. So that was the first couple of years. And then she tells she used to tell this terrible story of like when I was about three or four. At one point, apparently, I said to her, her name was Cynthia. So I said, Cynthia, when is my mom going to come and pick me up? (laughs) At which point she promptly was like, and we're done with the daycare. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that would be be it, I'm sure. Wow. um, And then she also... um, those opportunities were were becoming fewer and far between. I think, you know, there was some changes in the social system as well where she wasn't going to be able to do that. And so she ended up getting a job as a housekeeper in our local hospital, the Elliott Hospital. And that's where she worked um, from the time I was five until, gosh, she retired, I think, when I was in my 20s. Um, And so she was a, yeah, she was a housekeeper. So I have a very, very strong, I mean, from early on, I was very confused by the way economics could justify paying, like, for example, what I do now as a professor, so much more than what my mom did as a housekeeper, when, quite frankly, you would have to pay at least double the salary I'm getting now for me to do what my mother did in that job. Yeah. Right. So that's a whole other podcast. I mean, that question drives me nuts. It's partly my (laughs) labor labor historian background. But yeah, it's it's, it's nuts. Um, And she's a talk about an essential worker, too. My goodness. Not right? just during a pandemic. Oh my goodness! Um, what, was, so, is your mom still living? No, my mom. Um, my mom died a couple of years ago. She no, um, she moved to Minnesota. Thank you. Um, it, 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 this is a story for another podcast too. But um, after talking about moving to Minnesota for many many years and not, uh, she moved um, in gosh, December, 2018, um, to a little apartment in St. Peter. And then it was awesome. It was lovely. We were just moving her in. She had been here for seven weeks and then she died in her sleep. Oh gosh. Um, Oh my gosh. And so it was this moment of like, it's quite funny, you know, being a child, you sort of worry, or maybe it's just me, but I sort of worried about, oh my gosh, really, I'm going to be responsible for my mom now. Right. And she's moving to Minnesota. And yeah. and then, you know, she just like died in her sleep. And I was like, oh, huh. Yeah, no, it's, um, <laughs> I, my, my mother, I, my, both my parents are deceased. I remember my mother always saying, you know, don't want to something like, you know, I hope well, yeah, I don't want to be a burden, you know, yes. blah, blah, blah. So yeah, no, I was concerned about that. But my my parents and, and Kate's parents, we, we were, I mean, we missed them, you know, fortunately yep. not be the right word, but we were spared that, um, yes. you know, that all the, you know, the, the nursing oh. home and oh all that gosh. stuff. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm care, so, it's exhausting. It yes. I was expensive. so grateful um, that, you know, she was, and it's totally what, what she would have wanted as well. She was, yeah. she was not a fan of having worked in a hospital as a housekeeper for oh, yeah. 20 years. Right. She had zero desire to be in a hospital. Oh, of course. Um, yeah. 
And so, yeah. so this was, you know, this, this worked out really well for her, but it, it's just kind of the, 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 the sheer irony of the fact that there were still a couple of unpacked boxes. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> she, <laughs> she, was, she was ready to go, I guess. Yes. You need to unpack. Yeah. yeah so. uh, what about, did, did you, um, and I don't, I don't mean to intrude mm, no, or intrude, but did you, did you know your dad at all or come to know him? Or? No. Um, uh, this is actually a really, um, a funny story as well. This, the timing of all of this was just amazing. Fortunately, I was on sabbatical. So having all of these life, life changing things, um, uh, it turns out they're better to have on sabbatical. Definitely. Um, but in the same, around the same time, um, that my mom died, I had just done, uh, 23 and me cause I had never, um, I, I knew what my mother had told me about my father, but I didn't know, um, you know, you never know to what extent the stories are true. Right. Um, and so I did um, I did my DNA to try and figure out, you know, what actually is my background to try and get some of my own, you know, medical history and stuff. And what I had neglected to realize was that, you know, when you do these things, they match you up with potential relatives. Yes. And so they matched me up with my half sister. Oh, my gosh. Wow. So. So my dad has um, another family. Uh, uh, and, uh, yes. And so fortunately my lovely half sister, um, was, was very just like, she's just been awesome. She actually came to my mother's funeral, which, um, was amazing. And she is, she's been absolutely wonderful. I super appreciate her, but it was, it was a weird transition in that I just started learning about my father's family and my siblings at the same time as I was losing my mom. So it's a, it's, was a weird, I mean, it all has worked out, um, uh, reasonably well. I will, you know, never have a fabulous um, <laughs> family relationship, but that was pretty clear by the time I was two. Yeah. So, wow, that know. is so interesting. The twenty-three me, another friend, uh, an, an academic, she did it, and uh, yeah, discovered a, <laughs> a half brother that she didn't know about. Um, yes, he's white. He's black. Oh. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> um, it was just, it's so. I, I haven't done oh. it. I kind of want to because, as you said, I'm not. You know, some of these stories I heard. Growing up, I sort of wonder. I mean, I know I'm Greek on my dad's side. I know that for sure. What? What? Is, so, what is your ethnic background on your on your? Parents oh my side? gosh! Well, so uh, kind of amusingly, given that I ended up at Gustavus, um, my my father's family is of Swedish heritage. Um, so uh, I am through my father's side of the family half Swedish, and then my mother's side is uh, English and French. Um, okay. And uh, it's quite it's quite funny because growing up, my family always used to say, and don't forget, you know, we have a little Native American in us. And and <laughs> I know there is no video on this podcast, but but trust me when I say I could not be paler skinned. Um, and so I vouch for that. <laughs> yes, I, I was always pretty convinced that there was no Native American. And and as it turned out, yes, I mean, like the furthest south, I think my ancestors got was like northern France. So that's <laughs> <laughs> no, interesting. Wow, what a story though with your mom and she. Yes. So um by the time you by the time you go to well actually first let's talk about the church. You mentioned sure. the church. What's the church that you you grew up in? Oh gosh. Okay. So 
so I've had, I, it's funny, fortunately, I'm older now and now I, and I can think about this a little bit more calmly. I had real conflicts when I was a kid. So this church is called, was called the Church of God of Prophecy. So it was a, okay. an evangelical Pentecostal mm-hmm. um, speaking in tongues, yeah. slain in the spirit experience, which it turns out is not always the best experience for a child to have. Um, (laughs) On the other hand, the people in the church were absolutely amazing to my mom. So, but one of the difficulties I had as, as I was sort of hitting my teenage years was seeing this paradox between the fact that the people within the church family were absolutely amazing to other people within the church family and those who joined the church family, but it didn't move beyond that into a broader sort of critique of poverty or, you know, critique of public housing or just like there was a way in which um, this church I don't know. It sort of drew these lines without officially drawing them, right? Yeah, that's fascinating. That's a, that's a paradox for sure. There's it like was, no sense of social, yes. what social justice or sort right. welfare. Yeah, and for me, it sort of was like you know what I what the 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 Bible verses that they were using, like they were screaming social justice to me, um, hmm. but you know it just wasn't interpreted in that in that way, um, and so yeah, and so you know I ended up um, not participating in the church. Church, um, as I, you know, I went off to college and and eventually started getting involved in the study of religion, and then I wanted to very deliberately separate myself from the church for two reasons. One, I didn't want to, I didn't want anyone to assume I was connected to them, but also the kind of critique um, that was emerging for me in terms of religion was not about that particular church, right? It was more about the failure we often have to connect right. our faith sort of to the broader world rather than being specific to that church, if it makes sense. So you grew up in this church, which was, as you said, maybe, I don't know if traumatic is the right word for a little kid, but um, <laughs> what, what drew your mom to that church originally? Oh, gosh, great question. So mom spent her 20s, um, uh, by all accounts, traveling uh, around the south of the U.S. and uh, Mm. came across this church in the south. Uh, It didn't exist um, in the north at that time. I think it started in Cleveland, Tennessee. Um, And so so she kind of wandered around and then came back to New Hampshire, which is where her family uh, was from, in her 30s. And when she settled back in New Hampshire, she decided she was going to plant a church, one of these churches. Um, And so she was... um, she was a church planter um, and brought this church uh, to the New England area. Um, and in fact, it, it was there, I think, throughout most of my lifetime. It kind of spread around New England um, uh, for a while. And I think there are still maybe a couple of left uh, in the area. So, yeah. So she brought wow, it with her so um, she's, when she's, she came back from her travels. Yeah, she's a founder or, or a planter. Wow. Cool. What um, Did you have sisters? Yeah. Do you have sisters and brothers? It's called a planter planter so no not um not through my mom just the half sisters and brothers um that i that i discovered um but otherwise growing up it was just me and my mom um growing up so okay yeah 
And so off, off you go to Brown. Um, and you weren't, were you interested in <laughs> yeah. studying religion? Because you, what your major was like international relations, right? Yes. Okay. So, wow, gosh, life is just so fascinating. Okay. So completely randomly, um, as, as happens, um, I, so mom was working as a housekeeper in this hospital. Um, I was a latchkey kid. And then in the summers, once I hit 12, I was old enough to volunteer at the hospital. And so I volunteered in the pharmacy of the local hospital. God knows I probably wouldn't have been allowed to do that today, but whatever I did. Um, <laughs> and I worked with a couple of amazing Russian American pharmacists, um, uh, Jewish who had come over um, uh, from the Soviet Union. Um, and, uh, and so I became really interested in um, Soviet history, Soviet culture, um, you know, the kind of growing up in this church there, there was this notion that like behind the iron wall, there is no religion. Um, and certainly it was not uh, pleasant for Jewish people, but obviously there's a huge Russian Orthodox church. And so, and this gets us into the war in Ukraine as well, which is yes. <clears throat> all about the Russian Orthodox church too. But to, to learn that there was Christianity in this very different form um, to something that had been presented to me as like, communist atheist, right? Um, so anyway, right. when I turned 16, I had the opportunity to travel as a student ambassador in 1990 to, now you know what my age is, but that's okay. In 1990, I was able to travel mm -hmm. to the Soviet Union just as it was breaking up, wow. um, which was absolutely amazing. Wow. Spent a month traveling um, with other 16-year-olds um, other from New Hampshire. God knows why they let us do that, but I'm super grateful they did. Um, <laughs> we spent the 4th of July in, in Vilnius, Lithuania, and it was like the best 4th of July ever because like the Lithuanians were just having their independence. And so they were just like so excited to like celebrate 4th of July with, you know, United Statesians who were like 16 or like yeah 4th of July, whatever, you know, but so it was, it was just this incredible moment, um, uh, to be in, uh, you know, in that place, um, right. at that time. And, um, and so that led to my, like really strong interest in international relations, um, which is what I ended up majoring in at Brown. But I had a little bit of um, a conflict because what I saw when I was in the Soviet Union and of course what I saw being raised in New Hampshire was just poverty, right, all around me. And so I really wanted to think about international relations from the perspective of poverty. But at the time when you were doing international relations, right, that was all about the high level talk. And if you wanted to do things related to poverty, that was more the development track. And in which case you would talk about Latin America. You wouldn't talk about Russia right. or the former Soviet Union. Sure. That's so right. while I was at Brown, I kind of transitioned from I mean, I took, you know, I took classes in Russian when I was at Brown Um I, for a while, I spoke really, really good Russian. Um, I was supposed to spend a year abroad in Russia. That's that's a story again for another podcast that ended up not happening. <laughs> um, and slowly through, uh, I have so many stories for so many podcasts. Um, um, I ended up transitioning then to taking Spanish um, and uh, thinking more about development stuff. And then in the midst of all that, still had all these questions about religion 
and really just this fascination with how people can be so um, motivated by religion in such vastly different ways, right? And understand, um, you know, the biblical text, for example, to be saying such incredibly different things. Like all of that has just always yes. fascinated me. Um, that is awesome. And so I, I, didn't know, I didn't know any of this about this, you. This, like, Yes. So I just like I finished up at Brown with like all these unanswered questions. I was just really starting to get into the poverty thing. I was, you know, doing a little bit of the study of religion at, at Brown, but it wasn't really a major part of international relations. And and then also I'd grown up really poor. So I had like no concept of like what I was going to do for a career in my life. Like, that's just not a thing you think about when you're super poor, right? You're thinking about like, how do I get my next meal? Or like, you know, maybe I'll get a job right. as a secretary. So, so yeah, when I finished Brown, I was like, my God, like, what am I supposed to do? And so then grad <laughs> school seemed like a fabulous plan because that was avoiding the real world. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's how that ended up, ended up happening. Um, it was just Great getting to story. the end of Brown and realizing, you know, I was just starting to learn. <laughs> yeah, I've had a weird life. <laughs> it, it's just, no, it's a great, I think there's a little bit of a delay maybe between what I say and when you hear it, which is okay. Um, but it's a great, it's a great story full of um, what historians call contingencies, you know, uh, was not laid yes. out. It was not, was not inevitable by any means. Um I'm, I'm envious of your trip to the Soviet. My sister-in-law uh, majored in Russian. I think that's what it was at Williams. And so she's been many times um, mm -hmm. also. Oh, that is an amazing story. And to go at that time too, not just to go, but to go at the time you did go. Um, what is oh. so, yeah, let's talk graduate school a little bit. So you, you by the time you get into graduate school, you're, you're full on religion, right? I mean, in terms of what you're going to study. Oh, well, one would think so, but no, no, I had to, I had to go the difficult route. Um, I, so I sort of, as I came to the end of Brown, I thought, well, I haven't really figured out like the development stuff yet. So then I went and did a master's in development studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies, um, at the University of London, um, which wow. was amazing, loved it. Uh, basically, I had ended up studying abroad in London. Um, and so the, as an undergrad, instead of going to Moscow and then um, thought, you know, I need to get back to London. Um, and then while I was doing this master's in development studies, I thought, you know, this is amazing, but nobody's talking about religion. And like, it's such a major piece for people, particularly in developing countries, right? You just don't separate out religion from the rest of your life. So so then, so then I knew that I wanted to study, right, the study of religion, but then I had like no qualifications to do it. So I had to do another master's in theology, culture and development, which then finally led to the PhD, which then finally led to me becoming um, somewhat expert something or other in liberation theology. So yes, it was, it was a long and wandering road filled with much student debt, I should say. <laughs> but great schools, great programs. What, um, why Scotland? What drew you to University of Edinburgh? Um, 
<laughs> so initially, um, I had just started dating someone uh, who was was at the University of Edinburgh um, uh, through a friend of mine, and but it didn't occur to me that life could be so convenient as to you know actually let one end up in a place where you know, someone one was dating actually lived. Um, so I was looking like everywhere else for PhDs. Um, and then I ended up um, doing this master's um, and the PhD in Scotland because I met uh, Marcella Autos-Reed, who became my PhD supervisor. Um, she just, I just happened to um, have a conversation with her. I think this was back in the day when you were still doing phone call um, rather than, you know, even email. Um, and I sort of called, you know, just out of the blue thinking, I wonder if there's something here that might be related to these kinds of issues of poverty and religion. And she was a feminist liberation theologian from Argentina uh, who had just started teaching at the University of Edinburgh. And I was sort of like, oh, my God, there's this thing called liberation theology and it exists. And this is so amazing. And so so that's how I ended up um, in Scotland at the University of Edinburgh was just, again, contingency, just stumbling upon uh, this person who opened my eyes to this whole form of of Roman Catholic and Protestant theologies that that I didn't knew existed, but like answered so many of the questions I had once I kind of figured it out. Great story. Fantastic story. Um, before we talk about your book about her, um, why don't you give us a kind of a quick definition of what uh, both, both feminist theology and liberation theology are? Oh, gosh. Okay. So, so from my perspective, theology, and, and this is true for many liberationists, so I have to define theology before I can get to like liberation or feminist theology. Um, theology for me and for many liberationists is not just about what you believe, but about what you do with those beliefs. So if, for example, I tell you that I am very pro-life, um, but I have an abortion, that having an abortion tells me that there's a disconnect between what I'm saying I believe and what I'm actually doing, right? And so um, for, for me, theology and ethics don't really have much of a separation. Um, this thinking about God is, is um, important, but what's more important is the doing based on that. And so feminist theology and liberation theologies um, think about this doing, this relationship with God and how we behave. Um, in terms of feminism, it's from a female perspective. And in terms of liberation theology is thinking about how religion um, and our work within religious traditions should be to free people rather than to oppress them. What's kind of amusing to me in thinking about the terms liberation theology or feminist theology is that we always give <clears throat> these other types of theology labels. Um, and really, though, when you use the word theology alone, that actually should have the labels of like 
white European Christian straight male attached to it in many cases, but we don't do that. Um, and so, so what, what I see, you know, when I talk about the labels of various theologies, I sort of feel like we need to label all of it, um, you know, rather than think, well, there's this thing here that we'll call theology. And then there's this other thing that we're going to call feminist theology. Does that make sense? It it makes a lot of sense. Um, And thank you. I mean, one of the things I've just learned is how important it is to not only define, you know, not just feminist theology, liberation theology, but the word theology, the concept theology. So thank you for that. Um, Tell us now a little bit about the book, Queer and Indecent. Great title already makes me want to read it. What, what, what is your, what is your (laughs) argument there? What are you looking at in that book? So, so this ended up, this book ended up happening. Um, I blame entirely a friend of mine who is a a, a Methodist (laughs) pastor here in, in town in St. Peter, um, Andy, who I was having coffee with and um, we, you know, we exchanged books on various things. And he was talking about how um, fascinating Marcella was to read, but that pretty much by the time you get to the end of the introduction, you realize you just don't know enough. Like she, she was writing things 20 years ago that are still very cutting edge today. Um, okay. And she drew from like, European philosophers and indigenous religions and, you know, sex workers. And like she just her area of expertise was so vast that a lot of people, when they tried to read her, felt like not only was she challenging them with the concepts. So one of her concepts is a queer God, which can be very challenging but she was doing it with reference to a lot of things that many of us don't have a connection to. And so, so Andy was like, I said, Oh gosh, well maybe I should really write an article, you know, with a couple of themes that are important to Marcella. And he was like, um, that would be a book. (laughs) And it turned out he was right. Um, it, it, it was a book. Um, so I had the immense pleasure of, of reading through all of Marcella's work. Um, unfortunately, uh, she died, um, in her early fifties, uh, from a form of cancer. And so she was really Mm -hmm. just in the midst. I mean, she had just published her third book. She was really only in the midst of her, you know, who knows what would have happened next. Um, so, uh, but it, it also, you know, there was a distinct chunk of work. She had three books, she had about 50 articles and chapters. And so I was able to, um, actually go through all of that, kind of think about what were the key themes. Um, She would be so appalled um, if if anybody were to take this as as I had systematized her um, because she was very, very against um, what she thought was most important about theology and thinking about God and behaving was that it should always be this process of expansion and reflection and more expansion, like it should never be a narrowing. Um, But so what I was attempting to do in the book was to say, okay, let's say, you know, a little bit about post-colonialism. Here's a way into Marcella's work thinking about post-colonialism. Let's say you're interested in um, marginalization due to sexuality. 
here's a way in thinking about heterosexuality, right? So the point was to try to give readers, um, who, people who want to read Marcella, a way into her work without feeling like they had to know everything about heterosexuality and everything about queer theory and everything about capitalism <laughs> and everything about post-colonialism. And then, of course, don't forget feminism. So, yeah, right. that, that was the point it's, of the I mean, book. Which Congrat, con congratulations on the book, first of all. Um, secondly, I had not heard of her. Uh, I've learned about her only from uh, preparing for this podcast and listening to you. Um, I, I do want to get to the, the other book in a second. But before that, what, what do you mean um, by the title Queer and Indecent? So Marcella developed in her first book, her first book was called Indecent Theology. Um, and for her, growing up in Argentina during the Dirty War, um, anything that was not supportive of the government, any woman who actually worked outside the home or who was not a mother um, was labeled indecent, right? To be politically subversive, um, to be a, a woman who worked, um, to be gay, you know, God forbid anybody should be gay. Those were all um, ways of being indecent. And those terms were very conflated. And so to be against the government was to be considered gay. Um, to work as a woman was to be considered also a political subversive, right? All this stuff got conflated into what was considered to be indecent. And so what Marcella really tried to do was to reclaim this term to say that actually indecency is a really important perspective to take to you take a stance and you think, what is it that is considered decent? What is it that is considered normal? And why are we considering those things decent or normal, right? Are they actually normal? I mean, you know, just think about mental health and the way that we see mental health issues as some right. sort of strange aberration when, quite frankly, yes. for most of us during the past two years, right, that's been more normal right. than abnormal right. is to have mental health issues. Um, so that term indecent um, is what she applied, what she called indecent theology, which was a way of unmasking in theology all these kinds of hidden assumptions. And then the queer piece comes because one of the things that she argued was that at the basis of most Christian theology, and quite frankly, of most Western societies, is not just patriarchy, but it's actually heterosexuality um, that, that feeds into the patriarchal narrative. So this very narrow definition of heterosexuality as, you know, one man, one woman in a marriage for life, you know, that is the only context for a sexual relationship. Um, you know, she really saw that as like that is that is even underneath patriarchy, right? That's there's no yeah, point that's, in thinking awesome. about men, right? Right. So there's no point in thinking about like men dominating women in a context where you didn't already have heterosexuality assumed. Um, so that queering is again, you know, this deliberate. Her aim was for people of faith to question what their faith tells them is normal or is decent or is the only way that is acceptable to behave. Um, 
because a lot of that can actually lead and has led right to immense harms for people. Um, and a lot of that has simply justified a minority keeping power or dominance over others um, by assuming these things are inherent in the tradition rather than actually questioning to what extent, you know, the biblical text actually talks about X, Y, or Z. So that's kind of where that, right. where that terminology came from. Thank you so much for that. I, um, I, again, I just like the title. It's provocative and, um, I no, understand it better. And she sounds like, <laughs> she sounds like an, yeah, she sounds like an amazing person and thinker. Oh. Um, and again, congrats on that book. Um, what Thank about you. the earlier book, somewhat earlier book, Christian Guide to Liberating Desire, Sex, Partnership, Work, and Reproduction, from which I took uh, the opening question, what is good sex from the yes. perspective of liberation theology? Tell us a little bit about that book. Again, great title. <laughs> very good title. <laughs> but what are you what are you doing? It's in a very book? long and, uh, title, it, though. Yeah, it's a long title, but the first part is awesome, and it has the word "sex" in it, so it's yes. got to be good, right? Desire and sex. <laughs> but, what, what, but, but in all seriousness, what what are you what are you up to in that book? What are you arguing there? Okay, good question. So first, let me tell you where the book came from, because that might that might help it to make a little bit more sense. Um, one of, one of the things that that liberationists, that many many liberation theologians think, is that we sort of come to know God in in community, and it's only by experiencing life with other people, um, really getting to know other people, that we actually get to know more about God. That when you try to do this as an individual, right, you only have your own perspective. You're only learning a tiny bit and you learn so much more when you're in community. Now, this was sort of obvious to me growing up. Like I saw issues of poverty all around me. Like we were all in this together being really poor. Um, what was less obvious to me at the time was the clear connections that I see now between the race and racism, right? So ways in which I was so much more privileged than other people who I lived with who lived in my neighborhood because I was the white kid, right? Um, I didn't see for a long time um, the issues of gender um, and until I got into a PhD in divinity and realized like, oh gosh, unlike my church <laughs> where I grew up, where like the vast majority of people in the church were women, when you get to PhDs, not a lot of women. So, yeah, that was right. interesting. But so what happened when I got to Gustavus was this sense in which I I was no longer living in uh, a poor community. I was suddenly a professor um, and, and, and strongly in the middle class, which was something I had never um, expected to be. Um, and I thought, whoa, um, okay, how am I, like, I need to become part of this community. I need to start thinking about the issues in this community. How am I going to do that? And so I actually was a head resident for a few years um, at the, in the Carlson oh, wow. International Center, um, and which was a great experience. And uh, what I learned um what was far too much about our students' sex lives and the um, epic failure on the part of students' religious traditions to prepare them in any way to have healthy sex lives. I mean, at best, 
what they heard from their religious tradition, whichever tradition it was, was either silence or at best was don't have sex until you get married. Right. I mean, you might think that's helpful, but even if you were to wait, how is the magic supposed to happen? Like there, there was no guidance on like, you know, the wedding night, like there was just no guidance on how to have a healthy sexual relationship. So in the midst of this, I'm learning this about my students, which is like, holy buckets, like you have no idea how to even think about a healthy sexual relationship. And I'm living in the Carlson International Center where I am uh, keeping large amounts of condoms in my apartment, pregnancy (laughs) tests. I mean, like, like sex is a major part of our students' lives, right? At the same time as they have no idea how to actually think about it. Um, And so the book came out of like, oh my gosh, students are asking me these questions that um, in part because I'm a female religion professor, you know, I, I doubt they may have um, many of the women, um, you know, would have asked male professors this, but they were asking me these sorts of questions, right? Like, like, what do I do? Like, I don't really like this guy, but he doesn't actually make me sleep with him. So, you know, at least I'm dating somebody who's not making me. And I was like, whoa, like the whole qualification for a relationship is that you're not forced into sex. Like that doesn't seem healthy. So (laughs) what the book attempted to do was to say, okay, for those of us within the Christian tradition, how can we think about healthy desire? Um, Which there, there is a ton of evidence from within the Christian tradition that desire can be healthy rather than harmful, which is just not talked about in the churches in the vast majority. Um, There's a ton of talk about um, how to have good sex. Now, usually it's not just, you know, the play by play, but if you think about it in terms of relationships, in terms of sensuality, in terms of, you know, building both a physical and a mental relationship with someone else, there, there's all, there is just so much within the tradition that can be used um, as helpful rather than harmful. And then the attention I paid to the later part of the book is just in terms of sex work or partnership or reproduction was just to say, look, these are kind of the issues that people normally talk about. And I'll address these. And and I do, you know, say a few things about them. But first, you got to figure out what it actually means to have good sex. Because if you can't define that, if all you can tell me about is how to have bad sex, that does not help. So Mm -hmm. that's where the book came from. I that that is just fantastic on so many levels. First, be, especially because it comes out of your experience living with you know among uh, students. Yes. That's just incredible. I know we're going to run out of time here, and I want to ask you one one more question. But before I get to that last question, what what's okay. the pushback been, or what's the reception of the book been uh, among Christians? Oh goodness! So um, it turns out that there is a subset of people who loves it, right? Because even to the extent that they may disagree with aspects of it, to actually have people talking about it, I think is very positive. Um, Mm -hmm. Honestly, I haven't had much negative pushback. Um, I think more just that people 
It's not that people want to critique it. It's that many people within the Christian tradition still don't want to talk about sex at all. So I think it's easier to ignore a challenging book than it is to, you know, actually open it up and then start critiquing it. That's a good point. Um, and when I first saw the title, I mean, yeah, my first thought was, boy, Christian and sex. I mean, usually that's in, in the context of the, the first repressing repressing the latter. Um, I, I know you got to run uh, and, and we're always so busy as faculty. But before you go, um, yeah. give us give us your pitch. Give us your pitch for studying religion, why it's important uh, and for and for for the liberal arts as well. Sure. I, so one of the things that, that I found amazing, that I still find amazing, is that uh, many students, particularly if you don't go to college, you can actually go through your entire life never learning about either your own religious tradition, if you have one, or other religious traditions. And there, religion is such a huge part of so many people's lives um, that I think it's incredibly important uh, for us to understand both, you know, where we come from and then uh, what motivates others to do what they do. And I think this is kind of my rationale, both for religion and the liberal arts. Um, the importance of them is the same in that the goal, I think, of a good education is to help us to learn how to live together. Um, and of course, a career is important, right? Economic mm. survival is important, but we're not going to survive if we don't know sure. how to live with each other. And in order to live together, you have to understand yeah. both yourself and where you come from, but also other people um, and where they come from, their perspectives. And so in terms of the liberal arts, I think religion is very critical. I think, you know, political science, history, obviously, to perhaps not repeat some of the things we have done before. Um, communication studies, you know, there's just sure. there's so much right. um, for us to learn about how to live together um, sustainably that I think the liberal arts offers. And I wish that actually every college or university or quite frankly, high school um, would have uh, more attention to kind of educating us as I guess you would say citizens rather than simply, you know, for a particular career. So that would, that would be my yes. pitch for religion and the liberal arts. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I have a big fat <laughs> grin on my face because, yeah, that's a great pitch. And I love that learning, learning how to live together, which, of course, resonates even exactly. more powerfully now with what's going on in Ukraine. Um, yeah, well said. And uh, yeah, so listeners, um, especially prospective students and current students, um, make sure you take uh, <laughs> courses uh, with Thea Cooper, Professor Cooper and uh, others in the religion department. You'll learn. You'll learn a great deal. You may even learn how to live together <laughs> peacefully and sustainably, as you, as you said. So, Thea, this has just been a pleasure. I want to do another podcast just to talk about your work even more. But thank you so much for for taking the time and 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 take good care. You're welcome. Bye. See you on campus at some point. <laughs> bye bye. Learning for Life at Gustavus is produced by J.J. Aiken and Matthew Dobosensky of the Gustavus Office of Marketing. Gustavus graduate Will Clark, class of 20, who also provides technical expertise to the podcast, and me. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Gustavus Adolphus College. <laughs>